This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. So what I'm going to talk to you guys this morning about, and we'll jump right into it because I think it's going to take a, a minute to get through all this, but it's good. I'm going to talk to you this morning about strategy. Okay, and last Thursday, or last Tuesday, in men's group, Bruce brought something up that I hadn't thought about for a while, but we actually talked about it in here for a period of time, and it was the four areas that you're bound to encounter, guaranteed to encounter in your life, and that is innocence, tragedy, contending, and then victory or failure, and that obviously depends on how you contend. And without going in too much depth, I want to break those down just a little bit before we continue. And innocence, you have, you know, various types of innocence, obviously. For those of you who don't know, Lydia, she's pregnant, so we're having a baby. I I don't know if anybody in the room didn't know that. So that's, that's obviously exciting, and you, you think, well, obviously a baby in a womb, that child is wholly innocent. And then, you know, a, a newborn baby, that's innocent. But also, I think just children, as a general rule, like even my three-year-old and my six-year-old, who do things that you just think are absolutely ridiculous, they'll, Everly will just straight up lie. She's extremely good at lying, which is very scary, but it also shows that she's smart. She's very good at lying and things like that. But when you go watch, like, say, a movie like Sound of Freedom or something like that, and you see what's happening to children, it, that stuff kind of goes out the window. You know who the innocents are, right? It, it doesn't take much for you, you know. You, what's funny is it's inside of us. Like, you could be a three-year-old and watch, like, a superhero movie, and instantly you know who the bad guy is. You know who the good guy is. You could, you, anything. Good guy, bad guy. You, you know who they are. And so when you watch a movie like Sound of Freedom, it's like, okay, well, these children are obviously innocent. Okay, so that's innocence. You encounter innocence. You encounter tragedy. Now, tragedy happens on a few different levels, and I wouldn't exactly know how to rate tragedies, but, you know, you have physical suffering. Now, like if I broke both my legs or something, that would be kind of a tragedy. And, but worse than that is if you had, like, your child would had, like, an illness, terminal illness, even, even that's pain and suffering of one that you love, which is obviously worse than just me breaking my legs or something like that. So you have physical pain and suffering. You have malevolence and betrayal, which I would say is way up there. It's like if I told you I broke both my legs, well, you would say, oh, that's terrible, and, you know, I'm going to be in the hospital for a couple weeks, and then y'all would be getting a plan together about what food y'all are going to bring me to the house when I get out of the hospital, which, in case I ever break my legs, that's what I want y'all to do. So, but then if I tell you, well, my, my wife, oh, she's cheating on me with my brother or something, that's like, oh, wow, that's a whole different level. You're not going to bake me a cake. You're going to be sick to your stomach. That's a type of betrayal where... I thought I had the ground beneath my feet and these structures around me, my life was set, 
and all of a sudden, boom, I have no idea where I am anymore. It's a betrayal. That's a tragedy. Obviously, that's not occurring, okay, just so we're all clear. That's not occurring. <laughs> but that is worse than if I told you that I broke both my legs. So that's high up there. I mean, that affects the families. Like, if that were to happen in my family, that would affect everybody in my family for no telling how long. Could be talking about it for basically forever. And it's happened. Okay, and it, it could happen like it did in my Uncle Bruce's family to my cousin Cassie, and it's just like out of the blue. Well, and then you have another type of tragedy, and that's death. Well, death is like the ultimate tragedy, right? Because when you think about it, every single one of us are going to die. And worse than that, every single person that you know and love is going to die, and you don't know when that's going to happen. You don't know what form that's going to take. And I've heard people say before that, well, and I don't even know. I'm not even sure if people say this anymore because I've thought about it for a while, and I'm like, well, that's just a really stupid saying. And people say that life is short. And I've thought about that for probably a couple years now because for some reason I just think about random stuff like that. It's like, no, life isn't short at all. It's actually, like, incredibly long. Because the older you get, Grandma's shaking her head, no. She'll be shaking her head, yes, in a second. The older you get, the more people you have to care for and think about. And, you know, you're not supposed to worry, but worry about. You know, when you're young, you just think about yourself. And then you get married, and you've got a spouse to think about. And my wife's out on the roads, and she don't know how to drive, so I don't know how she even makes it around. And so I'm always, you know, it's like you're just waiting on that phone call and then you've got kids, well then you've got your wife who's pregnant with the kids in the car and you know the hot topic right now is trafficking, you know, sex trafficking, kids getting kidnapped and you're, you're just, you've got people to care about and then you could be on the road for, you know, since you were 16, I'm 30 now, so I've been driving for 14 years and it, any day, you know, over the next 10, you could drive 30, 40 years straight just fine and then all of a sudden you get in a car accident and you die, right? So life is long. I've got, I've got plenty more years left to make sure I drive correctly on the road. And then, like grandma shaking her head no, but grandma has kids, spouses, grandkids, grandkids with spouses. Do you? Yes, okay, I'm sorry. So she's got all kinds of people she's got to think about. And you could have lived to be 75, 80 years old, and no major tragedy happens in your life. And then, God forbid, one of your grandkids gets a terminal illness and passes away. And I'm not trying to be depressing. I'm just saying that the, the idea that life is short, and I'm only 30, I'm not even there yet. I'm just thinking, like, that doesn't sound, appear to be right. It's like, the older you get, the longer it is, because even though we're not supposed to worry. That's how it is. But that's because tragedy can happen at any time. And then there's contending, obviously, and victory or failure, and that depends on how you contend. And we're going to be talking about contending today, but we're going to be talking about it in the form of strategy. So you have to have a strategy. 
And if, you know, like Dad said before when he spoke on this, it's like having no strategy is a form of contending. It's not, it's not that you can't contend, like you could get away with not contending. That would just be a very poor way, a very poor strategy, okay? And so I like to play chess. I play chess on my phone. Y'all, I'm a loser. I literally watch chess stuff on YouTube sometimes. I literally will watch people play chess on YouTube. And, uh, like, you can see them playing, but then there's, like, a digital board in the corner that shows you where their pieces are going so you don't have to, like, try to look at the board real hard. But I watched a video a long time ago. and Well, not that long ago. But it was a video about how chess was created a long time ago and back when people were more intellectual, I guess, and they were bored, they created this game of chess, which is essentially, and I, I couldn't lay it out for you, the video could, it's basically life. It's, it's designed to play like real life sort of plays. And so I, I think I've heard it said before, it's like, well, play checkers, not chess. It's like, no, you can't, you just can't play checkers. Life can't get simple all of a sudden. Now you can be set up against a chess board and you can put some checkers pieces down and try to play checkers against chess, but life is a whole lot more like chess. And you can lay your checkers pieces down or you can develop a strategy. You can know the enemy, you can know the pieces. I mean, a rook moves a certain way, a bishop moves a completely different way, a knight really moves a different way. The queen can move everywhere. She can move the way any other pieces can move except for the knight. And for some reason the king can only move one spot at a time and then pawns move their own type of way. It's like it's vastly complex, you know. Like the four areas of life that you could just hit at any moment, you it's complex. You have to know what you're doing out here, okay? So you have to develop some form of strategy. And today we're going to compare two types of strategies. And we're going to compare that of Abel and Jesus. Okay, and it's going to be kind of funny because they're totally, like, they're really not comparable, but we're going to do it anyways. So we'll just get right into it. So Genesis chapter 4, we're going to do Abel first. Verses 1 through 8. Now, I won't read all the way through, so Nathan, you'll need to be ready. I've got some tips for us today, okay? So we'll have some tips on the screen. I've got five. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, let me pause right there, because I thought about this yesterday, and I don't, I don't have an answer at all. I literally have no idea why, so I'm just throwing it out there. So if you know, or you can think about it, or Dad, maybe you know. But I don't really know why, if Abel is like the favored son, God looks highly upon him, that when the birth, births are taking place, Eve says, with the help of the Lord, I gave, I brought forth a man. And that's about Cain. And then it's just like, well, later she gave birth to Abel. What a loser. Or something like that. So I don't know why, but 
study that and tell me, because I'd like to know. Because I've heard it said before that if there's, I, somebody said it, I wish I knew. If there's a shotgun hanging on the wall in the first act of a play, it better have been used by the fourth act or it shouldn't been hanging on the wall. So there's nothing superfluous about anything in the Bible. Everything has a meaning. I just happen not to know. And I thought about that yesterday. And so somebody better fill me in at some point. Okay, so now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Okay, we're talking about Abel's strategy today. This is a major red flag. Okay, and you can hardly blame Cain or Abel. And I'm not sure if it's ever been talked about this way, but I feel like you can hardly blame Cain or Abel for, like, Cain's reaction and Abel's, like, inability to see what the outcome could be. Because these are essentially the first two people, Adam and Eve, are created by God, but these are the first two people like you and me who were born by other human beings. And we've had thousands of years to cope Learn how to cope with anger and bitterness and jealousy. You know, we've got counseling. Take 10 deep breaths, count to 10. We know how to cope now. Okay, but Cain's like the first person. And so when he gets angry, he doesn't have thousands of years worth of, I guess, evolution to figure out how to deal with this anger. And Abel doesn't know how far that anger can go. It could turn to rage. You brood on it, and it could just turn into a murderous rage, right? So this should be a red flag for Abel. He should see Cain, because I kind of imagine, and I'm not sure, you know, the story can be interpreted a number of ways, which is good. But I like to think of it like they're in this room together. Okay, or, you know, outside or whatever. They're before God together. And so Abel's getting all this praise. It's like Cain bought, brought this crappy wooden birdhouse and shows it to God. And his brother, like they're presenting this to daddy, shows his three-story treehouse that he just built. And God's like, oh, Abel, man, this is awesome. Isn't this great? Cain, bro, what the heck is that? Right in front of his brother. And you know how that is. You, you don't, most people don't get excited about other people's successes. They get jealous, you know. They, you know, it's like maybe they fake, oh, I'm so excited for you. Gosh, dog, you stinking son of a gun. And so this should have been a major red flag for Abel. He sees Cain, his face is down, he's angry. Abel should have taken two steps to the side and started thinking about, well, how am I going to work this out, okay? And so, that brings me to our first note, or tip. And that is, Abel is doing good work, but not looking out for the snakes, okay? 
So when you're doing good work, that's all fine and dandy. Keep doing your good work. Abel's making the proper sacrifices. I'm not saying that Abel should stop excelling. I'm just saying that he should open his eyes and not be so blind or naive or think that he's fully protected. And maybe, maybe, I'm not saying this, but if you're doing good, you shouldn't be proud or haughty or, you know, about the good work that you're doing. Right? All right, so verse 6 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So I saw on Facebook a couple weeks ago, a friend of mine from school, we went from kindergarten and graduated together, although I haven't really talked to him since school. We were friends in school. Well, it turns out he's a Satanist, which I didn't know until I saw this Facebook post. And so the, the post was, it's a meme, so it's a picture with words in front of it. And it's, I, I guess it was supposed to be this sort of attractive picture of Satan, even though he still was ugly. That dude is ugly. And in front of it, it says, if Satan is something like this, the post got deleted. If Satan is so bad, then how come he never killed anyone? And if you know, if you know the word, it don't take you long. But, you know, if you don't, it'll definitely take you, take you longer. But if you know the word, it'll take you about three seconds where you're like, huh. And then you're like, well, he killed Job's entire family. And then you're like, okay, well, did he kill anybody else? I don't really know. Let me go to the comments. Okay, so my interest is peaked. I go to the comments. And there you go. There's like three comments, and somebody wrote, he killed Job's entire family and his livestock. It's like, okay, that's what I was thinking. And then you, I was thinking about it for another minute, and I'm like, that is kind of weird. And it's like, oh. The only way that Satan was even able to kill Job's entire family is with the express permission of God. Why doesn't Satan just right out kill you if he can do it? That's because he can't do it. God holds the keys to life and death. He is the Alpha and the Omega. What is Revelation? I probably got you out of order, Nathan, but Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, now this is uh, John and getting a vision from Jesus. This is the book of Revelation. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Now, what that basically means is there's nothing to be afraid of. Do not be afraid. Satan has no true power. He can't actually harm you. Why? I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. Well, what does that mean? 
I am alive forever and ever. What does that mean? It means that Jesus conquered death. God is the one in control of life and death. He is the creator. Satan didn't create anything. He only seeks to destroy. But he's not the creator. He doesn't have the power to destroy you because he didn't create you. He doesn't have the power to kill me because he didn't create me. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Satan doesn't have any power. But Satan only has the power to deceive you. So that brings me to our second tip, which is that, and it says it right here in Genesis. It says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Satan can only desire to have you. Now, he's got a whole bunch of tricks up his sleeve, but all of the tricks are designed to get you to give yourself over to him. He can just trick you right into it, just like turning you into a Satanist. And actually, I've only been in like two or three Facebook debates, just because I don't do that. But when I know it's about to be in my favor, it's on like Donkey Kong. So I wrote on there this, this nice little explanation. And yes, it's true, he killed Job's family, but only because he had to get permission from God. And I just laid it out, and I didn't do any. I was like, I hope this finds you well, blah, blah, blah. But the point of the message was to say, this Satan that you worship is really just a weak, feckless, jealous, fallen angel with no true power. He's jealous of the power that God has. So he wishes to steal, kill, and destroy, but he gets you to do it to yourself. Okay? So back to Genesis. It says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. Let's go out to the field. Now if, Cain, if Abel had his eyes wide open, Abel ain't going, either is not going out to the field, because if you've got your eyes wide open to the snake, Cain is obviously a snake right now, right? If you got your eyes open to the snake, you're going to be like, bro, what you want to go out to the field for? All right, yeah, I'll go out to the field for you, with you. Let me go get my jacket. You go put your jacket on, put a big old knife in your jacket. All right, Cain, let's go on out to the field. What you want, buddy? Whoa! Because you're ready. You're seeing the snakes. Don't just make the proper sacrifices and, and not be <laughs> I'm sorry. Not be looking out for the snakes. So that brings us to our third tip, which has been made itself obvious by now. It's that just because God looks on you with favor, this is obvious. Just because God looks on you with favor doesn't mean the snakes can't get to you, right? And we know that better about our internal snakes, okay? So, you know, we've been talking about external for now, people around you who might be what they call now praying on your downfall. But you've got your internal snakes too. And you have to have your eyes open. You have to be conscious of yourself and your weaknesses. Because just because you might be favored by the Lord, you might be making the proper sacrifices like Abel, doesn't make you fully protected. You have to strategize. You have to play defense, okay? You can't just play offense. 
you have to do like what they call in chess, develop your board. There's a whole different, a whole bunch of different ways you can develop your board. There's the London system, King's Gambit, Queen's Bam, Gambit, Sicilian, close Sicilian. It's like, it's so complicated. And I'll tell you how to deal with some of your internal snakes. Now before, I don't know how long it's been, but I read a children's book in here one time when I was speaking, and it was called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. Okay, was, who remembers that? Anybody? There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. It's legit a children's book, but it's super profound. And so the book goes something like this. Billy Bixby wakes up one morning, and he notices a dragon by his bed. But it's a little dragon, about the size of a kitten. Okay, so Billy goes downstairs for breakfast, and he tells his mother, he says, Mom, there's a dragon in the house. Remember, it's just the size of a kitten to start with. Billy tells his mom, there's a dragon in the house. And Billy's mom says, there's no such thing as a dragon. So what does that mean? She's ignoring the dragon. Okay, so then the dragon gets a little bigger, and it's time for breakfast, and Billy's mom is cooking Billy pancakes, and the dragon hops up onto the table. He's not, the dragon's not sitting in a chair, and at this point it's already bigger. It sits on the table, which normally wouldn't be allowed, but since there's no such thing as a dragon, then he can't be sitting on your table. And then Billy's mom is whooping out pancakes because Billy's still hungry. Why? Because the dragon apparently likes pancakes. And he's, the dragon is eating all of Billy's food, all of Billy's bread. And his mom has to keep making him pancakes so that Billy finally gets one. But the dragon is taking all of Billy's food. Okay? And then the dragon gets bigger. The dragon's taking up the whole hallway. Pieces of, you know, his leg is going into this room and his tail's going back into that room. And Billy's mom's trying to clean the house, but she has to start going out of the window from one room and into the other window of another room to get to that room because she can't take the normal route. I hope you see where I'm going with this. I'm talking about your house, okay? And then Billy tries to warn her another time or two, man, this dragon's getting really big. Billy, there's no such thing as a dragon. Well, then eventually enough time passes by where the dragon has gotten so big that his head is sticking out the front door, his tail is sticking out the back door, his legs are out the side of the house through the windows. He's taken over the whole house. Billy and his mom are captive upstairs. There's, they've lost the house. They've lost the house. And then what happens? A bread truck, what do we know about the dragon? We know that the dragon really likes bread, okay? The bread truck comes driving by, and that dragon sees that bread truck, stands up, uproots the whole house off of its foundation, and takes off down the road with Billy and his mom just along for the ride. They got no control over their house, and then the dad... <laughs> the dad gets home, and he's like, where'd my house go? And the neighbor says, your house is running down the street. 
And so he hops back in his car, and he goes up the street, and sure enough, he finds this dragon. The dragon has knocked over the bread truck, and he's just sitting down, happy as he can be, taking over your house, eating the bread. And he's just so busy eating the bread that the, the dad just walks on top of the dragon's head all the way up its neck to that top window where Billy and his mom got their heads sticking out. And he goes, well, how did this, how did this happen? And Billy goes, or he starts to say, it was the, and Billy's mom tries to interrupt him for one last time and says, there's no such thing as a, but Billy finally had enough and interrupts his mom, recognizes the problem and says, but there is a dragon, a very big dragon, right? And it's not until you or I are willing to point out the dragon, point at it, call it out, recognize it, and address it that the dragon can begin to shrink. And the cool thing about the story, and it says something like this explicitly, is that the dragon once addressed, shrunk way faster than it had grown. So it's like you could have been an alcoholic for 20 years, 20 years, and you decide that you're going to point that out, recognize it, call it a dragon, call it by name, and go to Mighty Man for one year. And people are like, a year? A year is a long time. I'm not going to some therapy or rehab for a year. It's like, really, you wouldn't go to a rehab for a year and come out totally clean and change your whole life in one year when it took you 20 years. You mean to tell me you could shrink 20 times faster, that dragon, than it grew? And a year is a long time? No, a year is a flash. A year is 20 times shorter than 20 years, for those of you who couldn't do that math. But I'll tell you another thing that's interesting, and this is my point about the internal dragons. And I thought it was weird when I read it at first. And it's that the dragon shrinks back to the size of a kitten. Like the dragon doesn't disappear. Now there are 100% instances where the dragon completely disappears. Like I believe Anton is fully healed won't ever even desire another drop. But the dragon just shrinks to the size of a kitten. Okay? And I could think in my own personal life, this will sound weird to say, but don't worry. I could think in my own personal life, because I'm willing to, to address myself, it's like, I haven't smoked pot or gotten high off painkillers in like 12 years and I could see myself going my life going sideways enough to where that could happen again like it's not going to happen again but here's the point it's only because I'm willing to say and recognize that about myself it's like okay this is a thing so let me play the board and set up defense and put all the 
pieces in place to where that will never happen again. And I can tell you right now, that'll never happen again because I recognize it. And it'll be, like the book says, manageable, a dragon the size of a kitten that might eventually die off. But as long as you give it the proper attention and don't try to pretend, because if I would just, you know, what if I said, oh, this is the stupidest example I could ever think of. But, like, what if I'm going to just go off with, like, three weeks with a bunch of potheads? Do you think I'm going to come back after three weeks and not have smoked me some pot? Uh, probably not. That would be a real stupid strategy, right? That'd be about the dumbest thing I could do to keep that dragon small. But anyways, so that is Abel. And so we're going to talk about Jesus now. And the cool thing about the Jesus story is that I'm only, it's the Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus goes to the desert to be tempted by the devil. But I'm just going to read the first two verses. Because I would venture to guess pretty much everybody in the room knows how the story goes. Because for the most part we're, it's always the same people in the room and we've brought this up a handful of times. So I don't think you need the whole story. I think you just need the strategy part of the story. Okay? So, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Boom! We've already got our first tip. All right, now this is, this is the complete opposite of Abel. That's why we're... That's why we're making the comparison. And I'm not sure if anybody's ever knocked on Abel before or what. But Abel obviously did a couple things wrong or he wouldn't have got killed right off the bat. Okay? I'm not saying he didn't make the proper sacrifices or anything like that. He was obviously favored by God. But in preparing himself to defend, to defend himself from snakes wasn't exactly what he was best at when it comes to his moves, okay? But Jesus has got some moves. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So there's our next tip. Follow the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit, and he followed the Spirit. And I venture to say everybody in this room has got some sort of inkling of where the Spirit would like to take you. And Jesus follows the Spirit right into the wilderness. And I'm telling you, about ten times out of ten, that's where the Spirit would like to take you. And that would be the only reason why you might not follow it. Is because it's unfamiliar. It's uncharted territory. It might make you nervous or you might be scared it's a step of faith it's like no 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 it's like the first time dad asked me to speak I, I have well I say I have no idea why but I'm starting to understand why I had told myself for so long like no I ain't speaking I'm not gonna be a preacher no that ain't that ain't me why am I telling myself that why am I telling myself that? Is it even me telling myself that? 
Or is it the devil, who, by the way, can't kill you, but has some serious tricks up his sleeve? Is it him whispering in my ear? And is it, do I think it's me telling myself that? Because why would, why, and I had never even been asked to speak before. Why before all that am I thinking about that? Was the devil trying to make this sort of preemptive strike? But so then, Dad finally, inevitably, I could tell him in my heart, it was coming sometime. So he asked me to speak. And I didn't, I didn't say no. I knew. I was like, oh, here it is. It's finally time to make this decision. Am I going to say no or am I going to say yes? And go back to the verse. You have to follow the spirit into the wilderness it's like you just you just have to understand that if you don't take that step you're in some other some other kind of wilderness that you do not want to be in now go back to the tip if you follow the spirit read the next part where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom if you don't follow that spirit, you're not going to be walking in freedom. Because that's where freedom is. Freedom is with the spirit. You have a sense of freedom after you've taken that dreadful first step. If it's something you've pondered on and you finally voluntarily take that step, there is freedom. Okay? In verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, there you go. There's your next tip. That's our last tip, is to fast. You know, you can't just go beat the devil down. Really, when you think about it, Jesus is the only one who can even beat the devil down. You can't beat the devil down. It took Jesus to beat the devil down. But it's highly recommended that you fast, and fast is really no different than sacrifice. You're sacrificing something. I mean, we can't get into the whole in-depth conversation about fasting. You can go to Isaiah 58, learn about true fasting, how you do it, how you're supposed to act. You see, you know, it says in there, if you see someone naked, clothe them, hungry, feed them. All the while that you're fasting, you're not supposed to be like making an example of yourself, bickering, quarreling, I'm so hungry, this, that. No, it's a preparation, it's an act, and you're supposed to act in obedience. True fasting. Go figure it out. So Jesus fasts for 40 days, 40 nights. He follows the Spirit into the wilderness which means he's exactly where he needs to be, and he's made the exact preparations that he needs to make. And, theref- and therefore, I'm not even, even going to read the rest because i got a couple quotes here. But what does he do at the end? You know, the devil asks him three questions. He dispenses easily with all three of the questions and then says, away with you, Satan. And therefore, Satan, in his true weakness, has been exposed 
because Satan can't take Jesus out. He can't kill Jesus. And as long as Jesus doesn't allow himself, allow himself to be tricked, then there's nothing else Satan's got. So you have to follow the Spirit. You have to follow Jesus. He's the only one who can truly manage the devil. That's why it took Jesus. And this, this brings me to a quote that I have, and it's from a book called 12 Rules for Life. It's a Jordan Peterson quote, and it's, a, it's just a great quote. It says, Satan, now this is what happens if you don't make the sacrifices. You, you embody one thing or the other. Satan embodies the refusal to sacrifice. Satan embodies the refusal to sacrifice. He is arrogance incarnate. Spite, deceit, and conscience malevolence. He is pure hatred of man, God, and being. He will not humble himself, even when he knows full well that he should. And I wonder if that speaks to anybody. Do you know full well in a moment that when you should humble yourself? Is, that, is there something going on in your mind right now? Some situation, something that you know you should humble yourself before God. Where the Spirit is trying to take you that you're not going to. Well, then what are you embodying? Furthermore, he knows exactly what he is doing. Obsessed with the desire for destruction and does it deliberately, thoughtfully, and completely. It must be him, therefore. The archetype the very archetype of evil who confronts Christ, the archetype of good. It must be him who offers the Savior of mankind under the most trying of conditions what all men most ardently desire. Well, then the question becomes, back from Revelation 17, Jesus said, he hold, Jesus said he holds the keys. He holds the keys to what? Death and Hades, which is also another word for hell. Death and hell. Well, how did Jesus get the keys? God didn't just hand Jesus the keys and say, here's the keys to your new car, boy. Have fun. He had to defeat death in Hades, or God wouldn't have given him the keys. So, if you want the keys, you have to follow Jesus. Jesus has the keys. He's got the keys. He's the proper example of sacrifice versus the unwillingness to sacrifice. And who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the one with the keys? You know, there's a quote, I think it's a Carl Jung quote or something, and Jesus did this. It says, a tree cannot reach heaven unless the roots extend all the way to hell. You cannot reach heaven 
unless you go through Jesus. Because Jesus is a tree whose roots extended all the way to hell, conquered it, and whose branches extend all the way to heaven. And you had to climb his tree. And so those are the five tips. And I'm going to leave you with a quote today. I would just like... I would just like to confuse you at the end of all this. I'm not, going, I'm not even going to lay it out for you, but I've been thinking. I read this quote. It's from the Gulag Archipelago. I know y'all are excited to hear that. It's short. Um, but I think it explains a lot. And so I'm going to read this quote, and I'm going to pray us out. Thank y'all for being here. Thank y'all for listening to me. I appreciate y'all. And here's the quote. And you can take, I got it all on one screen, so you can take a picture of it, read it later if you want to, or if you want me to send it to you, or if you don't care, that don't hurt my feelings, none either. But here it is. It says, there is a simple truth which one can only learn through suffering. In war, not victories are blessed, but defeats. Governments need victories, and the people need defeats. Victory gives rise to the desire for more victories, but after a defeat, it is freedom that men desire and usually attain. A people need defeat just as an individual needs suffering and misfortune. They compel the deepening of the inner life and generate a spiritual upsurge. So, Father, we thank you this morning for allowing us to gather here, for allowing us to sit here and consume your word in this comfortable environment. I pray that as suffering arises, we begin to recognize it as an opportunity for growth, freedom, spiritual upsurge. I pray that we will follow the Holy Spirit. I pray each, and, each individual in the room would contend with the idea and think about where the Spirit might be trying to lead and that we would not refuse where that Spirit is trying to lead, that, that we would simply follow, Lord. You are where we can find freedom. You are where we can rest our weary head, and you are the only true defense against an unceasing enemy. Father, I pray over each individual in the room as we go. pray your peace, power, provision, and protection, and that as we ponder these thoughts, that we can come to new revelation. In your name we pray, amen.